0: i am the vine you are the branches he who abides in me and i in him he bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends just as the father has loved me i have also loved you abide in my love You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. There is not a passage of scripture that has impacted my life personally more than the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. A few weekends ago, we began a study together through the 15th chapter of the gospel of John, just digging into a series that we simply called Lessons from the Vineyard. And I want to jump right back in and read that text of Scripture one more time. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. This weekend, we're going to bring those first 8 verses to a close. And next weekend, we're going to continue unpacking a little bit further in John 15 as we start with verse number 9. But if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. If you have your Bible, open up. John chapter 15, we're going to jump into verse 1. It says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And we come to verse 5, the one I've challenged you to memorize. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do, say it out loud, nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire. They are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As you read those first eight verses, again, one of the dominant themes is this idea of bearing fruit. Even the first weekend, if you remember, I asked you, how many of you desire to bear fruit? And everybody raised their hand and said, I want my life to be fruitful. I want to bear fruit for the glory and honor of God. So the first thing that we had to do to unpack and unlock the truth of John chapter 15 is define what fruit is. What is fruit in the life of a believer? Because many people misunderstand it. And Jesus here doesn't specifically give us a definition, but he does tell us that fruit is the defining mark of the lifestyle of a Christian. He tells us that it's the ongoing lifestyle practice of a believer. He tells us that fruit is the only thing in us that brings glory to the Father. And so from that, we deduced a definition that I want to put back up on the screen, and I want you to read it out loud with me. Here's fruit. You ready? One, two, three. The life of Jesus in me being lived through me. I hope you never forget that as you read John 15. We're going to just keep repeating that. The life of Jesus in me being lived through me. Remember the illustration. Jesus is using a vine and branches. And we said, what is fruit? Fruit is the life of whatever is in the vine being pressed out Through the branches. Remember what we said? If you got an apple tree, what's coming out of the branches? Apples, right? You got an orange tree, what's coming out? Why? Because fruit is the life of the vine being pressed out through the branches. Jesus said, He is the vine. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. So fruit is the life of Jesus in us being lived through us. Jesus did not invite us into a religion. Religion is trying to change my life on the inside by focusing on the outside. And if I conform to this system of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs and rules and regulations on the outside, then hopefully I can change who I am on the inside. That's not what Jesus invited us into. He invited us into a relationship where he comes to live inside of us and he's changing us on the inside and his life begins to be manifest through our lives on the outside. Remember what I told you? Jesus didn't save us. So that we could live for Him. Jesus saved us so that He could live through us. And that is a very different understanding of the Christian life. And so then we begin to ask and answer a second question. If, as a branch... My sole reason for existence is to bear fruit. And if fruit is the only way that I can bring glory to God, and if fruit is Jesus in me, living his life through me, then what do I have to do to bear more fruit? Remember what was interesting as we looked at this passage of Scripture? As many times as Jesus says bear fruit, not one time is there a command in these verses for you and I to bear fruit. There's only one command in John 15, only one that's given to us in these first eight verses. You know what it is? Remember the word? It's one word. What is it? Abide, right? Our responsibility is not to work hard on bearing fruit, and that's the way a lot of people understand Christianity. I'm supposed to work hard, try hard, commit myself to live the Christian life. No, my responsibility as a follower of Jesus Christ is to remember this hang on to the vine for all I'm worth, and as I abide in Him, Christ lives His life through me. The only thing I can do as a branch is hang on. To the vine. Let me read you a new quote by my mentor Clyde Cranford, the way he captured this particular passage of scripture. Look at it on the screen. How liberating to know that if we abide in the vine, the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Christ actually imparts to us his own life. This is real Christianity, a spontaneous overflow of the life of Christ through us. Isn't that freeing to know? No wonder Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free. It's not up to me to focus on all the do's and don'ts. No, no, no. I have one focus. Abide in Him and trust that His life will bring radical transformation in and through my life. And listen, this is not just a principle in John 15. This is the gospel and the Christianity that is taught throughout the New Testament. I want to, now after four weeks of walking through this together, I want to put a verse on the screen by, written by the Apostle Paul. I know you know this verse of Scripture, but I hope you read it differently now. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Remember when Paul said this? I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer, read this, it is no longer said out loud, I who live, but Christ lives in me. You see it? It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. How does this happen? The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see it? Paul said, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in dependence on him moment by moment, trusting it's no longer me, it's Christ in me. That is the Christianity of the Bible. And listen to me. Anything less than that is a cheap substitute for what Jesus invited us into. And religion has done a great job of offering a counterfeit. Many religions in the name of Christianity have just offered another counterfeit of the gospel. The gospel is Christ's death is my death. Christ's life is my life. And I live out of the overflow of intimate fellowship with him. So we, we gave you... A definition of abiding I want to put up on the screen. Abiding is to live life, or excuse me, to live in fellowship with Jesus every moment of every day. Read that out loud. To live in fellowship with Jesus every moment of every day. So, let's pause here for just a second, all right? We've been reading this now for three weeks. I'm not looking for a show of hands. I don't want you to answer out loud. But are you living in fellowship with Jesus every moment of every day? Are you carving out time to be alone with Him daily? And then throughout the day, are you living out of the overflow of that fellowship with Him? Are you still got Him in a box where you come to church on Sunday? And then you go live Monday through Saturday. Listen, if you try that, you know who the most frustrated people are? Not lost people. Because lost people are lost. You know who the most frustrated people are? Saved people trying to live like lost people. Jesus in them, but they're trying to live out of their own strength and resource. And no matter how hard you try, what happens? I fail over and over and over and over again. It's only when we begin to walk in intimacy with Jesus. So last weekend, I gave you a statement that I want to add a little bit too, all right? Here's the statement I gave you last weekend. I said that you need to be with God. We all said that together, but then we added the second part. God wants to be with you. How many of you know you need to be with God every day? Let me see your hand, right? I mean, we know we need to be with God. But if the only motivation you have to live in fellowship with Him is understanding you need to be with Him, it's easier to kind of overlook that. But it's a game changer when you understand God wants to be with you. And this week in my, I got a little discipleship group where I'm discipling walking through life with some guys and poured into them. And we were talking about that statement out of last weekend's message and just kind of going a little bit deeper in it. And God gave me an illustration that I want to share with you because I think it'll be a light bulb moment for some of you. How many of you know you need to eat today? Give your hand, right? I mean, we need to eat, right? You got to put fuel. Now, some of us, we just love to eat, but we need to eat, right? There's certain fuel that you have to put in the body. We need to eat. But if the only motivation we have is I need to eat, it's easy to sometimes skip a meal or to skip two meals or to put that off because I'll get to that later, right? If my only motivation is I need to eat, I can put that off. But if today, my wife who's sitting right up here on the front row, if my wife prepares a meal for lunch, and she has that meal sitting on the table waiting on me because she wants to be with me. Let me tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not skipping that meal, right? No, I'm going to be there. Why? Because she wants. Listen, listen. Oh, don't miss this. Every mourning your... Father prepares a table, and he is waiting on you because the Father wants to be with you. The Father wants to pour into your life. The Father wants to transform you. The, the Father wants to conform you to the image of Jesus. Every morning when you, it's not just, oh, I need to be with you. No, God wants to be with you, and he's waiting to shower into your life. His grace and his mercy, his faith his goodness, his kindness, his love. God is waiting on you. That'll change the way you see your time with the Father. It's not just something you need to do. No, he's waiting on you. You say, I don't know. Show me that in the Bible. Okay, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to show you. <laughs> Psalm 31. Look on the screen. Psalm 31, verse 19. Look what it says. How great. The psalmist says, how great is your goodness, He's talking to the Father. God, how great is your goodness, which you have, listen, stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. Listen to this. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of men. You keep them secretly in a shelter. Listen, here's what the Bible says. God has his goodness. God has his faithfulness. God has his loving kindness stored up, waiting for you to meet with you and to pour it out into your life. But here's what it says. It's in the secret place of his presence. You got to be with him. Which, oh my goodness, here's the here's the thought. If you walk away from this, to think about how many mornings How many mornings has my father? And I just rushed past that end of the day because I was too busy. I thought I could do it on my own today. He wants to be with you. And then here's what gets to happen. Throughout the day, you get to live out of the overflow. Overflow. Of everything that he poured. And you get to walk in that. And let that marinate into your soul. And that's the process by which God is changing. Listen to what R.A. Torrey said. R.A. Torrey, and I saw this this week, James Reamer, a pastor friend of mine here in Las Vegas. He posted this quote. Look at this on the screen. It says, here is the secret of becoming much like God. Hang on right there. Look at me here. Look at me here. How many of you want to become like him, right? That's what we want. R.A. Torrey said, here's the secret. Listen, here's the secret of becoming much like God. Remaining long alone with God. If you won't stay long with Him, you won't be much like Him. Why am I struggling in my Christian life? Why am I struggling? Listen, listen, I told you last weekend, my ability to walk in the life of Jesus in me being lived through me rises and falls on my time alone with Him. Isn't it wicked how the enemy has so deceived us? What's the most difficult thing in your Christian life to do with regularity? Time alone with Him. Why? Because the enemy knows the deal. So then we begin to. Shift last weekend, and we started talking about the Father's role. There are three main characters the vine, the branches, and the vine dresser. We began to unpack John 15. Look at verses one and two again. He describes the Father I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I hope you never read that phrase the same way again. Amen. That little phrase takes away, it's a phrase that literally in the Greek text can be translated lifts up. And we talked about that last weekend how this is not the Father being done with us. This is not the Father saying, Man, I'm throwing you away. This is the Father looking for those who've fallen on the ground and lifting them up and washing them off. And here's the principle the focus of the Father here is that He's constantly at work to put us in a position of fruitfulness. The reality is, it's possible for us as believers to, 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 to through a lack of abiding, get so caught up in the things of this world that we're kind of like a branch that begins to trail along the ground. And the principle of John 15 too is that God in his grace comes looking for those. He's not throwing them away. He's looking for them and he's lifting them up. And he's putting them back in a position of fruitfulness. Beautiful truth about the amazing grace of God. But before I leave that, let me just add one other thought. Because this is usually a question that, that comes up when you start teaching this kind of grace. People say... Well, pastor, if you teach that kind of grace, that God's not going to make, He's just going to keep, no matter what we do, He's going to come looking for, if you teach that, people are just going to live however they want to live. Well, that's partly true. Because, you see, in Christ, you and I are free to live how we want to live. But listen, hang on, don't turn me off. When you've experienced this grace, it changes the way you want to live. Don't tell me for a second that you think the grace of God gives you license to just go. Read Romans 6 sometimes. Paul deals with that very issue in Romans 6. The grace of God is not license to sin. No, it's the grace of God that overwhelms us and produces in us a desire to please Him with our lives. You meet somebody who's been overwhelmed by the grace of God, and I'll show you somebody who has a longing to please the heart of the Father. The grace of God overwhelms us. That's why in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul said this, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to what? Repent. He didn't say the wrath of God. He didn't say the judgment of God leads you. No, it's the kindness of God. I'm so overwhelmed by his grace that the only thing to do is respond to him and surrender and repentance and a desire to please him with my life. Paul also said it this way in Romans, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at this verse. For the love of Christ controls us. I love that word. The love of Jesus controls us. It's a, it's a phrase that means to hold together or to press together, that idea of controlling. It's the idea of, man, when we start going over here, no, God just steps in with his love and he, he encourages us back. In the, and when when, when God when we start going this direction, God in his love just begins to, to hold us and to encourage us back in this direction. It's the love of Christ that controls us. That's why Paul said, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Not because I'm afraid of judgment or wrath. No, it's His love that compels me to want to honor Him with my life. So the Father is always at work lifting, looking to put us in a position of fruitfulness. But then there's the second focus of the Father. Let me give you that this morning. He is continuously at work removing the unnecessary things that keep me from bearing fruit. The Father won't let us stay there in that season of not bearing fruit. He comes and He looks for us in His grace and He lifts us up. But then He begins to clean us off. Look at it, John 15:2. It says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He lifts up. But then it says, and every branch in me that bears fruit, he what? Say it out loud. Prunes it. So that it may bear what? More fruit. He comes in his grace. He lifts it up. And then he starts removing all those things that are unnecessary to keep us from bearing more fruit. The word prune. And John 15 is a word that literally in the Greek text, it means to clean or to purify. The Father looks for us. He lifts us up, puts us back in a position of fruitfulness, but then he begins to purify our lives. Here's what he's doing. He's removing everything that doesn't look like Jesus. If you look up the word prune in Webster's dictionary. Here's the definition. To remove that which is superfluous or unnecessary in order to produce more fruit. Here's the principle. God is at work in us purifying our lives so that we bear fruit so that we clearly have the life of Jesus in us being lived. Us. Now, it's very important that you see these two things in order. Every branch not, not abiding or not bearing fruit, he takes away. First, the Father graciously looks and he finds us and he lifts us. And then he begins to prune. Graciously. This whole thing is wrapped in his grace. He lifts us and ever so gently. Ever so lovingly, the Father begins to remove those things from our lives. Here's the reality. Through abiding in Him, when He puts me back in that position of fruitfulness, that position of abiding, here's what He's doing. He's wooing me back to Himself. When He does that, He's at work in every one of our lives. Using every situation, every circumstance... Every relationship to remove those things which don't look like Jesus. He lifts us, He puts us back in that place of abiding in Him, and then as we abide in Him, He begins to work in us, conforming us to the image of Jesus. Do you hear the tenderness in verse 2? I think sometimes because we've been impacted by religion, we read verse 2 with a sense of harshness. Every branch not bearing fruit he takes away, and every branch bearing fruit he prunes it. No. Lifting, abiding, cleansing. It's the same principle Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 8. We looked at it a couple of weekends ago. Romans 8:28, remember that verse? And we know that God causes, what does it say? All things. Now here's what that means. The good and the bad. The mountaintop. The valley. God causes all things to work together for what? Good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. You see what that says? It says that God is at work using every situation, every circumstance, every relationship, every trial, every sorrow, every heartache, every blessing. He's using it all to accomplish His purpose in us, which is the life of Jesus in me being lived through me. Now, now here's an important note. It doesn't say God causes all things to feel good. Right? Right? Sometimes we think that's what it says, and that's why when things in my life aren't feeling good, I kind of got an issue with God, right? Uh, Lord, I think you gave me somebody else's order. This doesn't belong to me, right? This doesn't feel good. He doesn't say God causes all things to feel good. He said he causes all things to work together for good. There are going to be some difficult situations in your life and mine. There are going to be some trials that we walk through. But we can have confidence that God is using all things to work together for good to make us like Jesus and accomplish His purpose in us. Now, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews, he writes about this same principle, this principle of pruning, but he uses a different word. He doesn't use the word pruning. The writer of Hebrews uses this word. Discipline, Ugh. we don't like that word, right? I mean, discipline takes us back to those moments in the principal's office in school growing up, right? Not that I was ever in the principal's office, but you know what I'm talking about for those of you who were there, right? That's what we think discipline is. We think it's a bad word. We, we've confused the word discipline with the word punishment. Discipline is not punishment. Let me me give you a liberating reality. God does not punish the sins of his children. Hang on, all right, because I know some of you just didn't have a box to put that in yet, but I'm going to give you one, so hang on. God doesn't punish the sins of his children. What do you mean God doesn't punish the sins of his children? Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Having been, that's done, past tense, justified, completed action, by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Through Him, Here's what that means. All of the punishment for the sins of the children of God was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus took all of my punishment. Jesus bore the wrath of God against my sin. I will never be punished for my sin. Christ completely satisfied the justice and wrath of God for my sin. That ought to make every child of God say hallelujah. Amen. He settled that. Often, we look at the circumstances in our lives because we don't understand that. Here's what some Christians say. Well, this is going on in my life because, you know, I did this and now God's punishing me. What an insult to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that God would hold something against you that Jesus already paid for that's why Paul went on to say in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not punished for our sins. But that doesn't mean God doesn't discipline us. Very different. Let me read you a quote by my mentor, Clyde Cranford. Listen to what he said. The motivation for punishment is wrath. And the purpose of punishment is retribution. The motive for discipline is love. And the purpose of discipline is instruction and correction. You see the difference? Discipline. The word discipline in Hebrews and used throughout the Bible, it's a Greek word, paideia. We've transliterated an English word, pediatric. The word pediatrics is a word that refers to the field of medicine that deals with small children the Greek word paideia originally meant to bring up a child, to educate them, to, it's used of actively directing them towards moral and spiritual nurturing and training. It's not punitive, it's redemptive. It's not wrath, it's love. So let me give you a definition of discipline. That I want you to kind of incorporate into your life. And it's really a definition of this word pruning too. It's the same principle. Here's the definition. It's God's process of graciously. Very important word. Underline that word. Graciously. Looking. Lifting. Cleaning. It's God's process of graciously. But don't miss this next part. Yet definitely conforming us to the image of Jesus. There may be a season, God's not going to let us stay there. He loves us too much to let us stay there. He looks, He lifts, He cleans graciously. But listen, definitely, He's going to finish what He started. Now, understanding what I've just shared with you, I want you to hear a passage of Scripture that is one of the most defining passages of Scripture about this principle of discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse number 5. Look at it up on the screen. Listen to what it says. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline. Now, every time you see the word discipline in this text, here's what I want you to think about. God's process of graciously yet definitely conforming. Look what it says. My son, do not regard lightly God's process of graciously yet definitely conforming you to the image of Jesus. He says, don't don't take that lightly. That's no small thing. Look what he goes on to say. He says, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he what? Has in a process of graciously, yet definitely conforming us to the image of Jesus. He disciplines and he scourges. Some translations wrongly translate that word scourge, punish. That's not what it means. It just simply implies that sometimes this discipline doesn't feel good. Anybody say amen to that? He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, if you're not in the process of God graciously yet definitely conforming you to the image of Jesus, look what he says. If you don't have discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our what? Good, so that we may what? Share his holy. What's that? The life of Jesus in me, being lived through me. Share his Holiness. Then look what it says. I love this. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. And all God's people said, amen, right? It does not feel good when I'm going through it. Yet, to those who've been trained by it. Look here at the John 15 analogy. Afterward, it yields, what, fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Oh, don't miss this. Not my righteousness, His righteousness in me and through me. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You can just write these down. We're not going to unpack them very much. I'm going to, just out of Hebrews 12, if you go back to that sometime, here's some some principles to write down. Number one, God disciplines all believers. That's why Jesus said every branch, every branch, not most branches, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. We're all in the process. That's why Hebrews 12 says he disciplines all of his children. None of us are exempt from this process. If you think there's a short circuit around to do it a different way, there's not. Every branch. Number two, God disciplines us because he loves us. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Mom and dad, how many times have you said this to your children? I'm not doing this to you to hurt you. I'm doing this because I, right? And I know our kids are thinking, yeah, right. But honestly, as parents, the most unloving thing we can do to our kids is just say, I'll do whatever you want. No, if you love them, you never say that. If you love them, You're constantly at work removing those things that aren't necessary. Right? Why do we do that? Because we love them. Here's what Hebrews said. If we, if we being earthly, human, fallen fathers and mothers, if we can have that hard attitude to our children, how much more? Our Heavenly Father. So so here's what that means. Don't miss this. Look this way. Don't write anything down right now. Look here. I don't want you to miss this. Everything in your life right now has been filtered through the love of God for you. You may not see it today like our kids but, but you will look back, either in this life or in eternity, you will look back, and even the most difficult circumstance in your life, you look back and say, man, God loved me so much that he allowed that situation, that circumstance, Because he was cleaning me to make me more like him. Grace. Here's the, the third one about you you can write this one down too. If there's no discipline, there's no relationship. Listen, if you're not in this process, you don't know him. You don't know him. That's what the word says. Four, we can trust God to discipline us rightly. He doesn't make mistakes. Listen, I with a heart of love have tried to discipline my kids, but at times, guess what? I've made mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. There's not one uh uh-oh in your life right now. Not one. You can trust Him. Number five, God disciplines us so that we may bear more fruit. Here's the, the bottom line. God, through the Holy Spirit, uses the word, trials, difficulties, relationships, even suffering, to prune our lives so that the life of Jesus in us may be lived through us for His glory. Now, I'm going to close with one final question out of these eight verses. Why have we spent four weeks unpacking this very simple principle of abiding in Him? Well, I hope you already know the answer by now. But just in case, I want to read verse 5 one more time. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Say it out loud. It didn't say most things. It didn't say big things. It said no thing, nothing. And and even though in English we get it, it's even stronger in the Greek. In the Greek, it's a double negative. It, It means absolutely nothing. It's emphatic in the Greek text. Absolutely nothing. What's Jesus talking about? Here's what he's talking about. As a branch, without abiding, we are useless. I looked up the word useless in the dictionary this week. I don't think I've ever looked that word up in a dictionary before. Useless. Here's what Macmillan's dictionary says uselessness is. Objects which have no purpose. cannot do what they were designed to do. I want to keep that definition up here for a second. Without abiding in Him I have no purpose and I cannot do what God designed me. To do. Why would we spend four weeks unpacking this principle? <laughs> because if you miss this, you miss it all. There's not one thing of value I bring to the table apart from abiding in Him. Useless. And just in case we read verse 5 and somehow it didn't click. Jesus, in verses 6 and 7, uses two conditional statements to emphasize and dramatically illustrate the uselessness that we are apart from Him. Look at verse 6. If Anyone. Now remember the context. He just said, if we could scroll up, we're not going, but but right above that in your Bible, it says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, and then he uses this comparison. He's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. Some commentators take this verse of Scripture, and they just jump right out of John 15 and begin to talk about eternal judgment. And they say that this verse is talking about people who profess to be Christians, but they really aren't. And at the end of the age, when Jesus comes again, that'll be made evident, and and they'll be separated from true believers. Now, don't misunderstand me. That is a true principle. And Jesus, in other places in the Bible, talks about it. Wheat and tares, sheep and goats. They they look like and try to act like Christians, but they're really not. But here, these are branches. These are not branches and fake branches. They're branches. This isn't grass and astroturf, right? This is the real thing. Jesus is not here talking about judgment grammatically nor contextually Do these verses speak about eternal judgment. Let me tell you what they talk about. They're an illustration Jesus is using to dramatically emphasize our uselessness. I read one one writer, and here's what he said about the wood of the vine. The wood of a vine has the curious characteristic that it is good for nothing. It's too soft to use for any purpose. The only thing that can be done with the wood out of a vine is to make a bonfire out of it. If the branch has dried up from a lack of abiding and fallen off onto the ground, he says, there's nothing you can do with it. Just It's useless. Burn it up. It's Jesus communicating to us in a very dramatic way what he said in verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Without, if you don't abide, useless. No value, like an old dried-up dead branch. Useless, good for nothing. It means that apart from abiding in Christ, our lives have no significance in God's eternal purpose. He says, if you don't abide, useless. But look at verse 7. If you abide in me, here's the if again, that conditional statement, potential action. If you abide and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done. Now, when Jesus said that, was Jesus saying, as long as you have a quiet time, you can wish for anything and I'll do it? No. Just like verse 6 was a dramatic illustration, verse 7 is a dramatic illustration. Jesus is not a genie in a lamp that you rub him the right way and get three wishes, right? Here's what verse 7 says. Verse 5 said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you don't abide in me, you're useless like an old dried-up brand. Verse 7 says, if you do abide in me, the potential is unlimited, For your usefulness in the kingdom of God. No limit. John 15, 5 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I want to compare that with another verse of Scripture. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Look what this says. I can do what? All things through him who strengthens me. You know what that is? That's the two illustrations of verse 6 and verse 7 right there in John 15. Apart from him, nothing. Through him, unlimited potential. Here's the reality. I know some of your stories today. I've had the opportunity to talk with many of you, and I know where you've come from. I know what God saved you out of. I know what God delivered. And some of you live with this this, this thing. Can God really use me? Listen. Listen. If you just abide in Him, the potential is unlimited for your usefulness, for the glory and honor of God.